Hello, everyone, and welcome to Master Engineer Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Sotak Andre, and you are listening to episode 42. But before we get into that, I want to wish you all a happy new year, and um, I hope that um, all of your wishes and uh, more so the goals you set out for yourself will come true insofar as you're actually willing to put in the work to achieve them. Now, with that out of the way, let's get into what this week's episode will be about, which is a side interest of mine, namely mixed martial arts. I have become a bit of a MMA fan, so to speak. Unfortunately, just a viewer for now, but I definitely plan on also immersing myself practically into the various aspects of the sport. I have a bit of a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu experience, but not much. So in this episode, I have Danny Lennon back on the podcast. Danny has been featured in episode one, which if you haven't listened, I would recommend where we discussed um, science communication and how to actually have a productive conversation with someone. Uh, In this one, I welcome him back to discuss one essential part of MMA, which I am not a huge fan of, and Danny isn't either, but it's just reality, and that is weight cutting. So aside from being the host of the fantastic Sigma Nutrition Radio podcast, Danny also works with elite combat sports athletes on the exact topic that we're discussing here, namely how to make weight in the most effective, efficient, and also the safest way possible. So in this episode, we got into everything you can imagine, like where should your scale weight be? How do you make the weight? You know, what are, what are the, the steps you can take? How can you rehydrate, refuel after the weighings, all that good stuff? We also touched on uh, some other topics, such as, you know, how to deal with anxiety and uh, bloating before or during a fight. And um, we also touched on the difference between MMA versus bodybuilding peak weeks because it seems to me that many people are conflating the two. As you will hear, this episode has been recorded a while ago because we are referencing the December 14th card. Uh, I mentioned Alex Volkanovsky, who is now the new featherweight champion. <laughs> he has since fought and won uh, the title from Max Holloway. Obviously, we, we recorded the episode before that, so just a heads up if you're wondering why the hell do we are we talking about that fight in the future tense, that's right. So, I've rambled long enough. Let's get into episode 42 of the Muscle Engineer Podcast with Danny Lennon. There we go, Danny. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. Yes, thanks for having me back on the podcast, my man. You've been my first guest, so hopefully I've made some improvements since then. <laughs> we'll see. I, I enjoyed our conversation, so I'm looking forward to another one now again. We are going to talk about MMA and weight cutting, because that is one of your specialties. Where are your clients from, so to speak? Like, do you have a UFC fighters as well, or do you work with fighters from other promotions? Yeah, so right now uh, on our current roster of clients, we'll have um, several that are fighting within Bellator. We've had some that have been within one fighting championship. We've had quite a lot that end up being on some of the promotions around Europe. Um, 
and on kind of more local cards as well. So it's a mix between those. And then we will also have some of our athletes who compete in jiu-jitsu. We have uh, some judo athletes. Uh, we have some other combat sport athletes. But for the pro MMA guys, right now we don't have anyone contracted with the UFC, uh, but we would have a, a few within uh, Bellator that, that we've worked with, as well as some of the other shows around. Got it. I wanted to start off with an interesting or an observation that I made a while ago and actually was hoping to do this with you, so ask, I can ask your opinion, which is the difference in muscularity between people, because we obviously know that in bodybuilding, there is a big difference between you know frame sizes and how much muscle someone can carry but i think it's even more uh obvious in in mma like if you watch like sometimes you know i, I watch these guys and uh the difference in muscularity and build is just insane like uh i was actually i looked up some stats in the featherweight division because uh i think that's a great weight class to illustrate my point because zabit is six foot one and he competes at 145. Now, obviously, he's a bit of an outlier, but still, like, to be six foot one at 145 or make 145, that's insane to me. Because mm. I know there are heavyweights who are six foot five or even under, I think. Right. Uh, and meanwhile, like, someone like Frankie Edgar is five foot six. Um, Max Holloway is 5'11, but he's going to fight uh, Volkanovski, and he's also five foot six. So I think this is a great. Uh, example to illustrate this difference between people and why do you think there is do you think that someone like Zabit for example intentionally doesn't uh, put muscle on so he can make that uh, weight class and simply have the advantage in reach and height so I do suspect that in a lot of cases uh, fighters will have gravitated to what they found early success in and so those that are more naturally or genetically inclined to say have a frame like Zabit where uh, unless there was conscious effort put in to gain a lot of muscle he would end up being someone that is, has the frame that he has very tall and can fit into these white, uh, lighter weight classes and can make that weight relatively easy and so coming up along probably would have seen some early success at that I think they're also you might have to factor in different styles that different fighters will use and what may benefit them from in terms of their frame size and so it would make sense if they you have some guys that have a background in let's say taekwondo they tend to be very tall for their weight class because that's a significant advantage in that sport and so similarly for guys that want to use long-range striking it may be beneficial to try and be the taller guy in a weight class and oftentimes that can be generally true anyway but then you have certain frames where you have these stockier, more muscular guys who maybe have tended to come from a wrestling background where there's much more emphasis put on gaining muscle mass uh, a lot of times. But I do think a lot of it is maybe not as planned uh, as much as we'd, we'd hope. And a lot of it is guys have gravitated towards where they've naturally ended up. Uh, they found su some, some success and then they just continue trying to go along with that strategy or within that same type of weight class. And as long as they're able to maintain some degree of performance, I think most of them stay doing that. And that's probably explains why later in, after many years of competing in a weight class, you see examples of some athletes changing weight class and then having almost immediate success 
And so it might have shone some light on the reason they were in their old weight class was just for that's what they'd always done um, rather than any real planned long-term view of, well, what body composition should I try and attain before thinking about weight classes, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, so where do you think the, if there is such a thing, which obviously probably isn't, but let's say hypothetically speaking, where do you think the ideal body composition would be? Because, you know, there are some fighters who are like Zabit, very skinny. There are others who <laughs> many people will look at them and be like, dude, you could probably, you know, tighten up your diet a bit and make a lighter weight class. Because I know, for example, Gastel moved up from 170 to 185, but... Uh, if you look at him, he could probably make 170 if he wanted to, you know, tighten up his diet a bit. Like Ben, Ask- ben Askren was another example who kind of looked like looked like that. He doesn't really look like the typical fighter image you have in your mind. And I know that in the MMA community, there is this big, uh, or I think in general, like it's sort of accepted that the more muscle mass you have, the harder it is to keep your conditioning up. Um, so where do you think the balance lies some around the uh, muscle mass, leanness, and also having a good cardiovascular base or your ability to fuel that muscle mass? Right. So when I've tried to think about what is an ideal body composition for um, an MMA athlete, there's probably three to four main factors that I think influence that. One is obviously things like genetics, the second would be their weight class. And I think you highlighted it um, that at lower weight classes, I tend to see more uh, homogeneity in the type of body composition you see. So like in the featherweights, you don't tend to see any with lots of body fat going around. When you go up to the higher weight classes, light heavyweight and heavyweight especially, you tend to see greater variance in the levels of leanness. And especially at a competitive level, it doesn't seem to matter as much probably because you have a wider variation uh, or a wider range in those weight classes, but also just because you have just generally bigger guys. So there does seem to be an influence of weight class. And then also the other one is individual performance. Some, and this also ties in with weight cutting too, but also for levels of leanness, some guys can maintain a relatively lean body composition year round. And so they don't have any real dip in performance if they have to get really shredded whereas some are a bit more sensitive to that in terms of their performance. And so they find that competing in a slightly higher body fat percentage, for example, leads to better performance um, and maybe also maybe a bit more re- resiliency to, to injury or, or damage. So generally, if people were looking for arbitrary numbers, one way I've tried to categorize this is, let's say if we take four male athletes and we said a quote-unquote ideal body fat uh, range could be somewhere between 7 up to 12% because I've definitely seen variation between any of that for athletes who are competing or close to competing that they're sitting within that range but as we've known there are people that go above that as well and perform uh, exceptionally well and are much better placed to compete at higher body fat percentages similarly for female athletes we might see something between let's say 16 and 22 and these are just arbitrary numbers i'm picking but somewhere in that range for most of the athletes would probably be a range where you're lean enough but maybe not so shredded that it's going to cause you problems with performance but then there's also going to be exceptions where many 
perform at their best at higher body fat percentages. I, th- I think at a broad level, you could make a pretty strong case for being lean and how we define what lean for an athlete should be is probably um, relative here as well. But just thinking of it logically, we know that muscle can produce force. So having more muscle gives the athlete more potential to use force. However, we're competing in a weight class so you can't just gain as much muscle as possible without having to move up those weight classes. So the goal is how much muscle can an athlete hold for a given weight class? And so the way you hold the most amount of muscle for a given weight class is to reduce the amount of body fat that athlete has so they can fit more muscle into that weight. So that would make the logical case for the leaner you get, then it allows you just to have more fat-free mass. So if we took two athletes of the exact same weight, let's say they compete at middleweight, which is 185 pounds or roughly 84 kilos, you have one who's 12% body fat and the other who's 20% body fat. That could mean you have a difference in uh, both those athletes of maybe like six or seven kilos of fat-free mass, even though they're going in the same uh, uh, body weight. So there's definitely a case we made for leaner gives you that advantage of being able to have more muscle and muscle allows you to produce more force. I also think it's, um, there's obviously something to it, but I also think it's a bit of a lazy critique to just say, if you have more muscle, that automatically means you're going to have terrible conditioning. I just think there's with certain training modalities, there's, uh, ways to, to obviously prevent that. And it's not necessarily, 100% true. So I think it's more about finding the point at which the athlete performs their best. Because on one side, I've just said that leanness uh, is generally good. But we also know if the more, if we get them really, really lean, that can have impacts on both their recovery during camp, but also more importantly on their performance. So if you take the extremes of leanness, like a bodybuilder on stage, then their performance, if you try to put them through any rigorous activity like an MMA bout, is going to be pretty horrific at that specific time. So there is some threshold at which we could get an athlete too lean. And also then the side effect of having to diet them that that hard to get down to that body weight is going to be negative. But there is a, a middle range of, I would say, relatively lean for most athletes is a good aim. Um and again, that may not be a precise answer, but that's probably the best we can do from a broad general perspective. Yeah, I think that's a nice framework. Now, you know, what I don't really understand, where I have, what I have questions about is, let's say someone uh, does find out that they perform better at the higher body fat level, but how are they expected then or how can they perform uh, in the cage when they are very... So what I'm saying is, you know, if for someone there's a huge difference between their off-season or whatever, off-camp uh, weight and the weight they actually compete at, uh, doesn't that hinder performance? Like, let's say someone uh, competes at, uh, I don't know, 155, let's say, but then they are 190 plus, which is, uh, uh, from what I heard, not unreasonable. Like, uh, wouldn't that hinder performance simply by having such a drastic shift in your day-to-day body weight i guess yeah so of course there's going to be massive trade-offs to any of this in the larger both the dieting phase and the weight cutting phase are going to be present more significant risks not just on the safety side but 
uh, for performance if we if we just look at performance for the moment so there's there's two components if you are let's say when you don't have a bout coming up and an athlete is what like you said 30 40 pounds beyond their weight class and they're going to have to diet down for several weeks during that training camp which is quite common that you diet over let's say a a couple of months leading into uh, the fight week and the fact that you have to restrict calories in of itself is a downside for performance so in an ideal world if there was no having to make weight the way you would structure your diet to make sure that you perform the best in the gym every day would be to have plenty of calories around you wouldn't want to go through caloric restriction for long periods of time but that's a necessity that we have to do in order to make a certain weight so it comes down to a trade-off and that's the balance and that's the difficulty in athletes trying to pick the right weight class because getting to the lowest one that you can isn't necessarily always the answer there's this trade-off between what is the benefit i get from getting into a lower weight class and using these weight cutting strategies and going from something like 180 down to the 155 class versus how does that negatively impact my performance and then trying to make a judgment call of which class is worth going for and which maybe not and i think many athletes actually still probably get this wrong or haven't tried uh, alternatives still with the presumption that the lowest class they can make is automatically going to be the one they're most competitive at but um, in terms of how you would work that out ahead of time it's extremely difficult and a lot of time athletes only use it through trial and error so you're right that if you have to number one diet for aggressively for a significant period of time and or you have to cut significant weight the week of a fight they are both things that put your performance at risk Um, however most are kind of hedging their bets on the fact that you can have a benefit of just being bigger at that lower weight class or at least not at a massive size disadvantage to your opponent so it's trying to tread that line between playing off that risk to performance and the performance advantage you get from being bigger yeah it's very delicate uh subject and very delicate issue to manage i know i was listening to some episode from the joe rogan podcast and uh, i think he had a couple of guys from the ufc performance institute and they were saying how you know they run tests and stuff so they try to figure out where their vo2 max and that sort of stuff are and they try to make decision based off of that so but obviously we're talking at a very high level there which (laughs) most people probably don't have access to yeah i think even beyond that a lot of time you probably are going to see things that you expect to see anyway so most of the the fight camps that athletes go through and they're going to be under eating and and dieting whilst doing a high workload of of training over the course of that you're going to probably see some decline in things like metabolic rate in total energy expenditure and so on that we can probably predict is going to happen now the interesting stuff if you do have that data is seeing the sensitivity of different athletes to that say caloric restriction and that low energy availability and which ones uh, have symptoms earlier than other people and maybe that might give you an indication of who might get away with cutting more weight than others but I think still a lot of it is trying to balance on an individual level between those two sides so on, on one side if you don't cut any weight you have zero performance impairment 
but you also have a size disadvantage. And then if you cut lots of weight, you have a size advantage potentially of your opponent, but you also have the highest risk for performance impairment. So if that's a sliding scale that we're thinking about, it's how long along that continuum do we put this particular athlete where they're going to get the uh, essentially the best benefit from both worlds or at least the, the maximal performance that they can given the uh, tough situation of that you probably need to cut weight if you're going to be competitive. Do you work with these athletes in outside the camp as well or are you just contracted for the last week of the fight camp? So that is usually down to the athlete. So all of them are up are free to make their own decisions around this. So, and, and that's probably one of the issues within combat sports. So a lot of the time it's left up to individual athletes to find a, a nutritionist to work with. And so in a lot of cases, it, it does tend up being that fight camp period leading into making weight and competition, um, especially because uh, for, for nearly m most athletes that are fighting professionally until they get to some of the the higher end of some of the, the big cards and the bigger organizations. Financially, it doesn't pay to be able to pay year-round uh, for services of, of what we do. But we do have some athletes that do work with us continuously. And as you would expect, that tends to be where we see the best results because we can then manage body composition year-round. We can have them in a place that before they start, let's say, the eight or so weeks leading up to a fight that they're already starting that fight camp phase in good condition and in a position that we know that we're going to make weight in the most effective way possible that it's not going to be too drastic that their weight isn't yo-yoing throughout the year too drastically and we can also build good quality nutrition habits that so when the fight camp comes around it's just a continuation of that but with a few tweaks now obviously that's not feasible for a lot of athletes to do and i totally realize that so we do still work with a number of athletes that will we might not hear for for a while and then they get a fight booked and then we'll work with them for eight to ten weeks and then they might be gone again doing their own thing and so it tends to be down to the athlete but it, it's a mix of both got it so in an ideal world where do you think someone should be let's say at the end of the final week so let's say they have a weighing usually that's on friday i think and where should they be on Monday, let's say? So, again, this depends on a number of factors that relate to uh, the athlete's experience with weight cutting, the level that they're fighting at, the response that they've had to previous weight cuts, the, um, again, the, the risk, the reward benefit of, is this a title fight, for example, and this is a, an opportunity you have to take. Also, other intangible things like their... Um, their fighting style can play a role here um, and again this is not something we have any research behind but anecdotally it seems to play out and at least logically it makes some sense for example if you have someone with a very grappling heavy game they may experience a greater benefit to cutting significant weight if they have a grappling heavy game where they have a strong top game that they you know they're going to be on top of someone for a lar large portion of that fight for example a Khabib right if he he's you're almost guaranteed that he's going to be on top of someone for a significant portion of that fight so for him carrying a large size advantage has a direct impact on the his performance and the likelihood outcome of that fight 
Whereas someone else who mentioned earlier, Frankie Edgar is a example I give of when he was lightweight champion, he cut almost no weight. I think he would walk around at like 157 and then compete at 155. And if you look at his strategy when he was fighting at lightweight, it was constant movement. It was one of these people that never stopped moving, a kind of similar style to a dominant cruise. So maybe for that person, you'd say, well, yeah, if we cut less weight, he'll have much more energy than if he was cutting a lot of weight. So he can maybe use this type of strategy, even though he's in a higher weight class. So that ties into it um, and all those other factors. However, if we're trying to go with general recommendations at a, a, at a large scale, where I've typically tended to recommend athletes be is a week out for that weigh-in. And, and this is, again, all on the presumption that it's a day before competition weigh-in. So they have typically most of these athletes have about 30 to maybe 36 hours between their weigh-in and competition. Uh, so a lot of our guys will, let's say, um, weigh in on a Friday morning and then compete Saturday night, something like that. So with that sort of lag time, a week out from the weigh-in, we said if we can get their body weight to about within 8% of their weight class, then that should be a relatively straightforward weight cut that still gives some of those advantages, but shouldn't really be any danger per se, or as as mitigated as much as possible, and shouldn't pose really any performance detriments, or at least that we found. For some athletes that can extend up as far as like 10% that we can do, and we know they do it quite reliably, uh, but not for everyone. Once it's beyond that sort of level, then it starts to becoming quite a risk and that I'm I'm not so um, willing to certainly not to recommend, but also that I, I think might be even counterproductive to a lot of people. So we'd say like 8% is kind of a, an ideal. And of course, some of them go less than that. We have athletes that only cut like 5% and feel great doing that. But like an upper level, about 8% with maybe some people in certain circumstances, maybe 10% above their weight class a week out. Um, and then anything beyond that just gets a bit too dicey for me to recommend. I'm curious, like, I didn't really look much into this topic, and I'm sure my, my audience, who are probably more sort of physique or bodybuilding oriented, will be, you know, left wondering, like, oh my goodness, 8 to 10%. I mean, that's what I plan to lose in three months of cutting phase. So, what are we talking about? Like, where are those kilos are coming from? Like, how much difference can you make simply by shifting your food habits and perhaps switching to? Uh, what's called the lower residue diet or you know perhaps I've heard that you know only switching to liquids that sort of stuff like how much difference can you make just from those nutritional interventions yeah so uh, that's a good point I should make this clear that really in that final week when we're talking about all this weight loss it's kind of clear that not really any of that is contributed by fat loss per se. The athlete is already lean at that stage. They may lose a few grams of adipose tissue, but that's not really anything that's contributing to that massive weight loss of that 10% drop in that final week. So it's an acute loss of their body mass, but not really changes in their body tissue. So what we are changing is number one, their body water, two, their glycogen stores or their carbohydrate stores, and then three, gut residue. So with body water, there's a few components that we would do to change and essentially to dehydrate the athlete. If you lose water, you lose the weight of that water. So one is the 
uh, a water restriction and often this is preceded by a water loading phase so we have them on a very high water intake for several days then they have either one to two days of very low water intake and restriction to lose water and to dehydrate then we can manipulate sodium intake here as well so again maybe two days before weigh-in of going on a low sodium intake will allow for more water loss we'll have the ability to use some induced sweating methods if they need to. So ideally, this is the last strategy that we'd use. Once we've done everything else, then those final couple of hours before weigh-in, we might have to get them to, say, go into a sauna or use a hot bath or do some uh, light exercise. There's different ways that we can do that, and we can talk about that later on. Uh, but for a small amount of the weight, we can induce some sweating. So all of those are strategies to lose water from the body. Second, then we can deplete them of glycogen. So there's carbohydrate stores. So that's losing glycogen and also the associated water from their muscle and liver stores of glycogen. So this would just be a very low carbohydrate intake for that kind of week leading into the weigh-in. They start to lose glycogen. And of course, as most people who have gone on a glycogen depletion protocol know, your body mass changes uh, quite acutely. And then the final kind of component would be a change in gut residue, which is simply the undigested food residue that's still in your intestinal tract. And one of the methods that we know that's actually been used as an intervention in a lot of IBS uh, research, for example, is using a low residue or a low fiber diet. So when you strip the those fibrous foods out of the diet and go on a low fiber intake for we typically do about three days you can see a drop of your body weight of about one percent on average and that can be higher and lower than that depending on your habitual fiber intake but the combination of all those things together makes it um, possible for us to be able to lose like that eight-ish percent of your body weight in the matter of that week um, and each of them contribute uh, slightly differently um, but it's the combination of them that is useful because I think one of the mistakes that athletes will make is they hear about someone dropping like that 8% they only think about the methods that relate to say particularly induced sweating like getting in a sauna and maybe restricting the water intake and an 8% dehydration is not the same as an 8% loss of body weight from a mixture of the dehydration, the glycogen depletion, the low residue diet, the low sodium intake, the low food weight in the few hours before weigh-in, um, having an earlier cutoff time the day before your weigh-in in terms of the time of your last meal and so on. And so it's a combination of all of those. And then for each of those strategies I've mentioned, there's a different risk profile for each. So for example, the things like a low residue diet has almost zero risk for your performance. So you go on a low fiber diet for two or three days, that has no detrimental impact on your performance, but yet you can lose some of that weight. Whereas things like sitting in a sauna and losing half a kilo or a kilo of weight after you're already dehydrated has a very high risk of performance unless your rehydration uh, protocol is uh, spot on um, and even at that there may be some other downsides so there's a different risk profile to each but using them in a um, in a combination we can lose the type of weight in those numbers i mentioned hey guys i interrupt the episode to remind you that as much as i love making these episodes they do not 
paid the bills coaching does for me. So if you'd be interested in working with me in a one-to-one fashion, I also offer online coaching for a limited number of clients interested in uh, body composition optimization. So if you'd like to lose fat, build muscle or any combination of the two, then uh, don't hesitate to reach out to me via an email. My email address is always in the description of these episodes and we can chat further from there. I am also available for 30 or 60 minute consultations for people who are not quite ready to invest into a full-on coach just yet. Thank you and let's continue the episode. Very, very interesting. And since you brought up, you know, uh, water intake and re- uh, restriction and all that sort of stuff, I have to ask because, you know, there is this uh, all the bodybuilding practice where they will restrict uh, water in the... Uh, I've heard as, as far as two days out, but certainly the last 24 hours and perhaps even in the day of the show. I know this is common practice still, especially here in Romania, even though most natural bodybuilder coaches I know don't do this. So where do you think or what's the difference between MMA versus bodybuilding? Because obviously they are judged on different criteria. In MMA, you're, you, they don't care about how you look and in bodybuilding, they don't care how much you weigh. So, um, what is the water intake procedure and does, because you mentioned something about, I think you had a podcast with Read Real, if my memory serves, about this, that you you can sort of front load water and then shut it off, I think, completely or at least significantly, and that will result in a water, water weight, water drop. Correct. Yeah. So on the water loading, um, as, as the phrase that's most commonly used is th- something that's been around in practice for a long period of time across several different sports. The idea of before you go through water restriction, so a few days of very low water intake, you you proceed that by having several days of very high water intakes. So for, let's say, the average uh, person, this could be like seven, eight, maybe nine liters of fluid a day. So very high intakes. And then that's dramatically dropped on either one or two days preceding your weigh-in. And this has been a strategy that's been around for a while and based on different mechanisms. And people said, well, maybe it impacts certain hormones like aldosterone, which is kind of related to water retention. It allows us to essentially, the the thinking was it's getting your body to upregulate how much you're going to lose water through urination. And then when you restrict the water, there's a lag time before your body essentially notices or catches up. So you can continue to lose more water, even though you've stopped taking it in. And that was the kind of idea. But really there was no research um, on this, at least in the types of strategies that had been used in combat sports until only recently. Like you said, Reed Real did his study that was published, I think, in 2018. His was looking at the impact of water loading and restriction in Brazilian jiu-jitsu athletes. I think also some other grapplers maybe have been in that study, some judo and wrestling guys, but mainly jiu-jitsu uh, competitors. And they had three days of the water loading phase, which was 100 milliliters per kilogram. So for an 80 kilo guy, that would be about eight liters of fluid. Did that for three days. And then one day of restriction, which was 15 milliliters per kilogram of your body weight. And then the following day was a simulated weigh-in or an actual weigh-in, but just not for a competition. And uh, they would see 
how much water they had lost. And they compared that to a control condition where the first three days of the studies were just a normal fluid intake and then the restriction day. And that study was able to show that there was more uh, body mass lost when the water restriction was preceded by a water loading phase for those few days, showing that when they went through the water restriction, they lost more fluid on on that water restriction day if they'd done some water loading. So that was the kind of first thing that says, well, there's actually something uh, to this. Actually, we still need more research to work out exact mechanisms of of explaining what's going on. Uh, I think in that study, they had hypothesized that it's maybe likely down to changes in uh, vasopressin. Uh, It's a certain hormone that can be related to our our, uh, water retention. But there's uh, still more ongoing work to look at that. But So we see that there's a difference here with water loading. So that's one... A particular method that we know uh, can be quite useful. Now, to come back to your original question of how does this relate to a water loading and water restriction protocol that is typically seen in bodybuilding, uh, for one, I should probably state that there are still many successful body coaches, bodybuilding coaches, I would say, that know far more about specific peak week strategies that they want to use and that they have anecdotal experiences with, with their athletes that... I'm not going to try and argue with because it's not something I do. And so people have to take that into account and and maybe talk to some of those. From my perspective, the way I've always seen it is obviously with combat sport athletes, the reason why we do a water loading phase and a water restriction phase and try and dehydrate the athlete is to lose mass and to lose weight on the scale so they can make uh, weight. And as you said, it doesn't matter what they look like as they step on the scale. And oftentimes it's not particularly good. The The goal is to make weight. With bodybuilding, you're, the the idea behind it, at least to, to from my understanding of what people have talked about, is this idea of if we do some water, restri- water restriction and slightly dehydrate someone, we can lose some of the water from that subcutaneous layer uh, just under the skin and it can make someone look a bit tighter so we get a better appearance. Now, the issue to, to me on, on hearing that is it's I'm unaware of how we selectively can pick where we lose water from when we do a water restriction. So we lose body water for sure, but when you are losing some from under the skin, how can you stop yourself from losing water from your muscle, for example? And so if you're going to dehydrate yourself, does that not mean that you get a flatter appearance in the muscle? And certainly that would be uh, my understanding. And I think there's probably several natural bodybuilding coaches who I know who don't use any water restriction. And I think for those same reasons, one, that they don't really see the inherent benefit but also I think it takes out a variable that can cause a lot of chaos. So if you're going to use something like that, it throws in a lot of, another unknown variable that you have to finally uh, balance over the course of going into that show instead of just being able to present your physique that you've worked to uh, put out. So that would be my understanding um, as of now. So I, there are, so they're doing it for very, very different reasons. And I just think uh, it doesn't make as much sense to me to try and do it purely for appearance reasons. Yeah, so the way I see it is, I think it's two reasons. It's one is simply drug-fueled culture. And from what I heard, and obviously I know zero about this, but 
when you mix drugs into the equation, that uh, changes things significantly. And there are certain compounds that retain more water than others, and they also use diuretics and that sort of stuff. So obviously there is this side which is not really mentioned, and natural bodybuilders just copy mindlessly. And the second part, I think, is just dogma and tradition. And basically, you know, monkey see, monkey do. And uh, like you said yourself, there is this, and I had this debate with a colleague of mine who is, I think since then I managed to convince him to stop doing this, but I know he did this as well. Like he, he would just stop water. And there is this romantic idea in most people's head. Like the way they explain it is that, you know, you you are depleted, but then you start carb loading, and uh, he also, or from what I heard, he did like w- the water loading stuff. So uh, the theory would be that you start water loading, and uh, you know then you are full with water, but then you start introducing carbs, and you and you uh, stop drinking water, and then those carbs are going to suck the water out of your skin and go straight into your muscles alongside the carbohydrates and then you'll not only be full and carb loaded but also you will look dry because obviously you have no water underneath your skin and obviously that's a very naive and very romantic idea but again if you don't know or know very little physiology then you can simply make up those gaps gaps in physiology with your fantasy and your romantic ideas of how physiology is supposed to work and uh, there was a very good peak week episode with eric helms and uh, i think it was on jeff nipper's channel it was a round table with cliff and helms and peter fitchin i think and uh, eric was mentioning that you know you can't really like there is water in your muscles there is water in your blood supply like you can't really select like you can't just push a button to select where the water is going to come from and uh, cliff was mentioning that actually what he's found that water restriction usually results in a softer look not a harder look or the way most people would would want it to be right yeah and i think that the challenge is that there's so much that is going to be based on anecdote and it has to be because of the stuff that's being done uh, within competitive bodybuilding that we can always look directly for uh, a study to show us something but we have to base it on physiology which is the start point which is what you mentioned that there are things that we know from physiology that just will happen and other things that we know that can't happen so once we have a basis of that then i think there is still flexibility to understand what people are anecdotally reporting um the problem is we don't really know why we're observing some of these things and why it's working for some people and not for others and what contributed to a certain look. And there's so many variables that kind of change over those few days um, that it gets really difficult to know what is actually going on at the level of those cells until we look at some uh, physiology work and try and clobber together an explanation for what we're seeing. So going back to MMA, uh, how much, let's say you you have made it to... 24 hours before the weigh-in and you are still uh you have still ways to go like how much weight can you or how much weight should you try to cut in the last 24 hours because uh, i heard some <laughs> very very high numbers like i heard even something like 15 percent or something ridiculous like that um and that's just uh 
crazy to me like how much weight or was like i'm curious like what's the most extreme case you've heard perhaps from others and what would be a safe amount you would actually recommend for most people um so there's been a few that i've heard recently one of the athletes that we've actually worked with at sigma uh, he was telling about a uh, weight cut that he did but, but previous to um working with us where the most he'd seen in the final 12 hours before a weigh-in, he lost nine kilos in 12 hours. So that was uh, pretty tough going, uh, he was saying. So there's things like that. There's another guy I know here in Dublin, actually, who has worked with several um, professional boxers on their weight cuts. And they had one who's actually quite a well-known guy. I probably shouldn't mention him, but he's um, that he was work competing for like world title fights in pro boxing and he liked the strategy of making weight all in the shortest period of time he could so he didn't do any other strategy apart from when it got to 12 hours before his weigh-in he would basically have his hotel room turned into essentially a sauna through the use of these big industrial heaters he would bring in and would start exercising uh, doing shadow boxing rounds of three minutes on one minute off um sweat out a ton of weight go to sleep get up the next morning do the exact same and within that 12 hour period would cut all the weight he had to cut uh purely through uh dehydration and sweating um and he so he would only start trying to make weight 12 hours before his weigh-in so that was uh how you see that all these different athletes have just different approaches that they have based on psychology and preference and just things that they've habitually done so some of the the cuts can be quite large so like i said that uh, when we see something like nine kilos in 12 hours we would tend to try and stay away from that and ideally we'd want to in the final the final day is still going to be where most of that weight across that week is lost so if we go back to some of those strategies i mentioned earlier the low residue diet will be working over the previous few days um, but during the water loading phase, we're not really going to see any drop in body weight, or at least not that much. Some athletes have actually seen, they start to see their body weight come down, uh, and there's a few reasons may- maybe why. They're also probably still in a slight uh, deficit. They're obviously start the low carbohydrate intake, so you're going to see their body weight gradually go down over those the early part of the week. But most of the water loss still is going to happen in that day before the weigh-in. So I would say a sizable uh, percentage of that cut is still going to come in that final day. So if they're losing 8% of their body weight, uh, then we may see that uh, 5% or 6% of that is is going to come in those kind of that final uh, day. Um, but again, it just comes down to how much total cut the athletes left themselves. Uh, obviously, with the size of the athlete will relate to the absolute amount of weight they're going to lose. And then the individual suitability for large weight cuts because some athletes can tolerate pretty well with seemingly not many downsides at least to performance and and they can tolerate more so um there's some of the stuff that i've observed and let's say you have now you you made somehow you managed to to you know uh weigh in and you're good to go like uh how much can you actually regain and uh, what would be a very or what would be the most effective strategy 
to go with because I heard uh, like Costa, for example, with uh, for the fight with Romero, I've seen that he was almost fifteen percent heavier in the in the in the cage, and actually he is uh, prohibited from competing in I think it was in Nevada um, at at what eighty five. Because they had, I think they had a fifteen percent rule, and he was like fourteen point ninety something percent above the scale weight, and that's just crazy. I mean, I I, I actually did the math, and I think he was twenty seven pounds heavier. Yeah, it, it's it's wild, and it kind of uh, it kind of makes it funny to think about weight classes that we have in our head for certain athletes when every time we've seen them compete, they've never actually been that weight. So it's a, just a funny thing to think about. But yet with the weight regain, we've had a few papers actually come out over the last couple of years that have looked at trying to predict the success of combat athletes based on the amount of weight that they can regain before competition. And there certainly does seem to be um, a strong predictive capacity of the more weight you can regain uh, between weigh-in and competition, it kind of correlates at least with performance for a lot of athletes. And this probably just makes sense on one side. If you cut a lot of weight and don't put most of that back on, then maybe you haven't really restored your glycogen. Maybe you're still slightly dehydrated. Maybe you haven't been able to take on board enough fluids, electrolytes, and, and overall total calories and so that is going to have some knock-on effect whereas if we plan out that rehydration and refueling stage appropriately the in an ideal situation would be to try and get the athlete back to 100% rehydrated and to be able to get uh, a uh, the carbohydrate intake most that we can uh, within that time frame that's not going to cause of course any gastrointestinal distress but try and get enough carbohydrates back in so they can enter competition with uh, full glycogen stores and so if we're doing those things and obviously the fact that they can take in a, a large amount of calories if need be and if they're they could tolerate that compared to having being restricted on calories for quite a period of time yeah we should be able to see quite a large uptick in in body weight most often we're trying to aim to see can we get their weight to roughly around what it was um at the the start of fight week and and that seems to be pretty doable in a lot of cases um and that's just because you're restoring fluid and carbohydrate primarily back into their system Um, and obviously it's just because they're eating a bit more there's more food in their system too but that should happen relatively quickly it becomes a matter of just having an effective timeline for doing so so obviously when you have someone that dehydrated and with no carbohydrates you can't just say okay just drink what you want and get as much fluid in right now and take this 10 liters of water and just drink it off or have lots of uh, food that you're just going to keep eating. We have to manage it in a way that look at what is the rate of rehydration we can achieve. And so we tend to say, okay, we're going to try and rehydrate at roughly a rate of maybe a liter per hour on average. And we'll go faster initially, but then on average, it, it's it's about a liter per hour because there is a limit to how much fluid you can take in and not just urinate it all back out. We'll look at, uh, from a carbohydrate perspective, have a set rate of carbohydrate ingestion that we can have, uh, again, like an, a, a per hour rate we work out, but really that translates into consuming that every two hours or grazing on food throughout that period of time. Um, so for example, we know if you give an athlete 100 grams of dextrose in a shake 
then that's probably going to give them some gastrointestinal distress. And so we need to manage how we distribute that carbohydrate uh, re-ingestion after weigh-in. And so we'll plan that out based on how many hours they have until their competition um, and a host of other factors like when they're going to go to bed, trying to not have fluid intake too close to sleep that disrupts it, trying to cut off fluid intake early enough before they start warming up so that's not going to disrupt their warm-up before they go out and things like that but making sure that the total amount of fluid, the total amount of carbohydrate is taken care of, but it's also split up into um, doses that's going to be most useful over the course of that time. And then obviously just trying to pick foods that they're used to consuming instead of trying anything crazy just because they've made weight. I actually wanted to ask about food sources because I would imagine that when you're so depleted, um, certain foods might be an issue. And so do you mostly, mainly go for liquids or do you also, because I heard, you know, fighters say that they went out for burgers and fries and I wouldn't imagine that would be the most effective strategy for (laughs) refueling. Yeah, so usually the first meal after they've stepped off the scale is always a liquid meal and just for obviously they we want to get fluid back in as quick as possible and it's convenient that we know exactly what they're going to consume we can put the adequate amount of fluid we can put electrolytes and we'll typically put a carbohydrate powder in that shake and they're going to be able to drink that as the the first thing they have in terms of nutrient ingestion after making weight they may have another one of those as, as their next meal depending on how they feel uh And we just know from experience that they often report that it probably takes a few hours before they actually feel good eating those solid meals. If they eat solid food immediately after stepping off the scale and it's a big meal, it just doesn't seem to digest pretty well. So so we try and go first one to two meals are are those liquid shakes that we have um, that can vary in components. But the most important ones is the fluid electrolytes and carbohydrate. We may include some other stuff as well. Um, and then we will split up based on what types of meals that we know they digest uh, quite well that they're used to having throughout their fight camp. Um, again, we'll try and have it that they're not uh, too quote-unquote heavy, for lack of a technical term, in terms of meals that are very high in fat. For example, some guys just don't feel so good on it. Um, and we are going to try and stick to higher carbohydrate feedings for all their meals over the course of the rest of the day. Depending on the athlete's preference and what they tend to tolerate, that could be some relatively standard large meals like a, a dinner with plenty of carbohydrate. For others, they f- they prefer not to and they prefer to graze more frequently. So for that, we're just looking at high carbohydrate-based snacks um, on stuff that they're used to consuming, keeping in line then with our fluid intake of having a set amount of fluid per hour that we're aiming them to consume and they're the main uh food considerations really and once we know that we can hit our target carbohydrate amount then uh, that's that's the main thing from a fueling perspective and not having foods that are going to cause any uh, gastrointestinal distress or that we the athlete hasn't tried before or that we're worried might cause any issues um so that's the the primary things. And we, within that, that gives actually quite a lot of flexibility in terms of specific food choices, which tend to get impacted by where the athlete's competing, 
what is available in the hotel or nearby shops of where they're actually staying and that obviously depends on where in the world they are and and what they have around them in terms of resources um some may be sponsored by food prep companies for example which makes it quite easy others may have to try and find food locally um others uh, can find it quite challenging to get the type of food that we want so all those things tie into what specific foods are consumed but really once we have those main principles taken care of uh there's lots of flexibility with specific food choice this is something that i'm always wondering like whenever i see these fires like um i know for myself like stress just fucks up my digestion like royally like if i get even for any event that i might be you know anxious or excited uh, my my digestion just my digestion just goes off the window, and I I would imagine that for someone who has a privacy let's say a title fight like I wouldn't imagine that they get to sleep very much uh, the day before, and then also having this challenge of trying to refuel rehydrate that sort of stuff, and then the you know the stress or anxiety of going into unarmed combat with another guy who is trying to take your head off, I would imagine that wouldn't be very uh, chilling. So, uh, have you heard stories of fighters being bloated? Have you found ways to manage this or uh, ways to work around this? Because I heard the story. I don't know who it was, but Chair Sunim was talking that you know the guy was was about to walk out and he was like, "I gotta take a dump." <laughs> was like, what do you mean? Like, you have to walk out? Come on, guys! I have to take a dump. <laughs> like, seriously? Yeah. Like, that's a serious consideration. Like, how yeah. the hell are you supposed to fight when you feel like you're about to shit yourself? You know, the way you set up that that refueling process can probably help there for sure. So, on the one side, we have the consideration of an athlete who is having certain gastrointestinal symptoms that makes them not want to really consume meals. And that can be a challenge to try and get them to refuel. So with that, that's where it's super valuable to be have something like those liquid meals where we can at least say, okay, even can you just start sipping on this over the course of the next hour that we know we're getting some of this back into your system. But even at that, after a while, for anyone that's consumed carbohydrate uh, powder, uh, you know there's only so much carb drinks and carb gels that you can consume out feeling horrible so then the challenge is okay what types of foods are going to be useful but are not so unappealing to the athlete that they're not going to want to do it and so that would be we might have them have let's say a high carb snack like rice cakes that feel kind of quite light they're very easy to get down and they can just consistently snack on them over a significant period of time and things like that might be useful because it's not doesn't feel too heavy it's not going to impact digestion too much so having some very easily digestible carbohydrate sources like that is useful in terms of the stress causing symptoms like that that can impact performance that's certainly a consideration and i think that's one of the benefits to having a pre-planned regular feeding schedule that the athlete does for each time they make weight and each time they compete because they know how they respond to that food coming back in their system right and when they're typically going to go to the bathroom or how they digest certain meals and through those experiences we you can come up with a, a schedule of feeding for the athlete that is the least likely to cause any uh, detriment as they're starting their warm up, and especially hopefully as they're not about to enter the cage. So that's why we will do things like change that that um, 
rehydration strategy I mentioned, we will stop that probably about two to three hours before they begin their warm up. Um, and then from that point, instead of having a set amount of fluid to consume, it's just sip on it whenever you want, whenever you feel that you need some. But there's no specific requirement because by that stage, they should be rehydrated. And also we don't want them just to continue to have to urinate as they're already nervous and already trying to warm up and already having a million other one things to think about. Um, so there, there are some considerations I think are useful and having a consistency in what you're doing might help mitigate some of that stuff. Because I know just for myself, like even for something as non-significant compared to what these guys are going through, like having a hard leg workout, I prefer actually going into it fasted and just having a big dinner the day before because I find that if I eat, then I'm also a bit anxious about the weights I have to hit. Like I just I just get bloated and you know, that's not really a good the thing to, to fear during a leg workout. So that's what I asked. Absolutely. And, and just kind of tying into that body awareness, because I think you see this quite a bit in, in powerlifting, that there's this wide variation in how people like to feel going into certain sessions. You have this one group of people on one extreme who like the feeling of getting a bloat on specifically before they go and lift. And then other people, and I would put myself in that category as well, I... I can't imagine any worse feeling than trying to have to to train when I'm feeling like horrifically overbloated uh, from a massive meal. So, and then there's people obviously in between. So I think just having that awareness of what you feel best with, and that often trumps um, what would be ideal from whatever kind of theoretical nutrient perspective we can come up with. If it was up to you, would you get rid of weight cutting completely or would you change it? What kind of changes would you implement? Um, you said you work with some fighters from 1FC. Uh, obviously, they do things a bit differently there from what I understand. like They also test hydration status, so you're not allowed to step on scale dehydrated as in something like a UFC would be able to do. Like, Do you like that better or do you find that less uh, health or do, do you think that has less health impact long term or how would you how would you change this whole process? So from an absolute ideal perspective and we're looking at fighter safety, then if you got rid of weight cutting completely, then it removes the problem. So that would be great. The the problem is that isn't really practically feasible. Like I just don't see a way that you can organize the sport to make that happen. Um, one potential way that you almost eliminate the possibility of weight cutting is the closer you put that weigh in to immediately at the start of the fight. Now, again, this becomes logistically almost impossible to try and organize guys to weigh in just before they're about to get into the cage. Um, and especially as you get to places that have sold tickets for people to come and see fighters and already one of their biggest concerns is fighters pulling out on the week of fights or missing weight, doing that on the way to the cage probably is never going to happen. So the question is, how do we try and make it unlikely that athletes are going to cut large amounts of weight? And I'm not sure I have a really good answer to this because it. I think athletes are going to be drawn to doing it even if it doesn't serve their best interests because they're just unaware of the downsides of it. So for example, you could say, well, if we had weigh-ins that are on 
let's say the morning of a fight and they have less time to cut weight surely they'd start cutting less weight it's like no probably most athletes would try and cut just as much but they just don't have time to rehydrate which was kind of one of the reasons why the ufc have now do their weigh-ins uh the on the say a friday morning as opposed to waiting until that afternoon and then they end up doing a ceremonial weigh-in for tv so to give athletes more time to rehydrate the then you have the issue of if you have so much time as in we could have up to 36 hours sometimes in that case there is a um, huge drive to cut a large amount of weight because you know you've all this time to rehydrate and refuel so how you go about getting rid of it maybe the answer relies in some sort of hydration testing that has some of its issues as well um and i i it's just it just is going to be hard to know at what point it becomes feasible to do and the other big consideration with mma specifically is that you have to get all these various different athletic commissions on board so there's no kind of universal consensus that we could get to straight away. It would have to start with, say, California or Las Vegas. Um, one of the commissions having a certain uh, rules and standards that then it get adopted by others. But it just becomes a bit more tricky to coordinate all in one go. Um, so it's it's a tough one that I don't really have a good answer to as, as of yet because I've thought about it quite a bit and I would love to kind of present this mastermind answer to someone. But as of yet, I haven't been able to come up with something that not only eradicates all the downsides of weight cutting, but also uh, fits in with the interests of the organizers and uh, fighters and so on. Yeah, I mean, Joe Rogan, I think he said the same thing that he would like to get rid of weight cutting, but fighters are, like you said, they would do it regardless so they would just be exposed to a higher risk uh, from, you know, because that's why I know that, for example, jiu-jitsu has two-hour weigh-ins or even mat side weigh-ins, but there you don't have strikes and you don't <laughs> have to defend, you know, someone trying to kick your head off. So, I mean, like you could go to a jiu-jitsu competition and, and oftentimes, as I'm sure you've seen, you could have a situation, depending on how it's it's organized on the day, but you could weigh in and you could be on the mat like really soon after that almost no time to do anything like straight over and and competing and so that gets rid of a lot of the incentive to cut a large amount of weight but you of course still have competitors that are cutting weight for a jiu-jitsu competition so um you could extrapolate out and say well yeah if we try and make it impossible for athletes they're probably still going to do some sort of weight cut to try and get that one percent benefit and they're just going to cause more harm so it's a really tricky situation uh, of how to enforce no weight cutting like like saying that we're going to eliminate weight cutting is one thing but how do you actually enforce that is is another trickier issue it's a complicated issue and we have already gone the pre-scheduled time so thank you Danny again this was a really awesome conversation it was a pleasure to talk to you it's MMA is something I I am very much a, a big fan of even just uh, from a pure entertainment pure point of view, so it was very nice to also be educated on this side of the of the business. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. I, I love talking about this stuff. So uh, thanks for asking me. All right. So that was episode forty two of the Master Engineer Podcast with Danny Lennon. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you also find it valuable. Now, as usual, I will end the episode with some of my takeaways, which in this case won't be many 
because as you can imagine MMA and weight cutting all that stuff is not really my expertise so I don't really have a whole lot of personal insights to add into it aside from what Daniel already has covered I will just finish with two notes one if you're interested in this then you can either hire Danny or one of his colleagues to you know do the work for you if you want to work with them as in a an athlete coach relationship or if you're someone who would like to get educated on this so as to serve as a coach or whatever the term is nutritional counselor professional weight maker regardless hope that he doesn't mind me mentioning this he is a, he said that he is actually working on a course that will take you step by step through the process and will teach you how to actually do the kind of stuff we mentioned here obviously this will be a paid product but still i think it's a fantastic opportunity to learn from one of the best in the business when it comes to this so i would keep an eye out for that in case you're interested and the second takeaway which is a more practical one is once again to highlight the difference between peak weeks water intake and simply the goal of the whole process between MMA versus bodybuilding like it seems to me it goes both ways like MMA coaches you know look at bodybuilding and they start potentially implementing some of the strategies they they use water loading and water cutting and stuff for bodybuilding or at least it seems to me that some bodybuilding coaches have taken some of those practices and implemented them into bodybuilding because other than that i can't explain why people still uh, stop their water intake for example between 24 to 36 hours before the before the actual contest like it only gets them looking worse I would hate for bodybuilding coaches to give advice to MMA athletes when it comes to weight cutting because it's also not the same. So I would just say stay in the lane and know your goals, know what you're trying to get out of this peak week and act accordingly. That's all I had to say for this week. As always, if you enjoy these episodes, please leave a rating on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called these days, Podbean, Stitcher, wherever you get these episodes from, uh, share it with a friend, tag me on your Instagram, all that stuff is very, very, very much appreciated. Word of mouth is essentially how this podcast will grow. So thank you in advance if you do any of those things. If you're interested in coaching or you have any questions, just, you know, hit me up on one of the social media accounts. I always have linked in the description of these episodes and I will be more than happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you and until next week may your gains be loyal.